Oh, a wise guy, eh? Indeed he is. Part two of our interview with Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball, next on Baseball HQ Radio. on the way, a swing and a belt, left field, way back, Blue Jays win it, the Blue Jays are World Series champions, as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays... Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 3rd. It's show number 7 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have National League news with Harold Nichols and American League news from columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about how the Republican primary system affects your fantasy baseball strategy. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Nationals third base prospect Anthony Rendon, and in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about putting punting into perspective. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? I had my first draft last Thursday. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Good to see uh, things starting to get underway. Yes, they are. I know you've had a couple of drafts. I had my first National League draft in many years, an auction on uh, last Thursday. So it's definitely coming up to that time in the fantasy baseball year. And, And Nick, the big news in the National League clearly was Ryan Braun having his suspension overturned on appeal because of procedural matters. We'll leave the politics of it aside for other people to talk about. The question is, can Ryan Braun have the same kind of monster year in 2012 that he had in his MVP season last season. Yeah, I mean, you know, here was a guy that's a guy worth over fifty bucks last year in uh, in rotisserie dollars. Thirty uh, thirty hit three thirty two. Can he do that again? And, you know, and and you've got to bet on some regression after a year like that. But if you look at the numbers, if you look at what Ryan Braun has done, it'd be hard to bet against him. You know, here's a guy whose batting eye in two thousand seven was zero point two six. Didn't uh, was not walking too much, striking out a lot. You know, that batting eye grew last year to 0.62. Um, slowly, his walk rate has gone from 6% to 9% last year. His contact rate has slowly gone up. So um, all the all the hitting skills that we look for have been growing with Ryan Braun. On the other side of the coin, if you look at, uh, you asked the question, was he lucky last year? Uh, 35% hit rate, that's uh, kind of been, uh, he's done that before. Uh, so that's not out of his range. Uh, home run for fly rate, 19%. Again, not out of his range. Uh, actually, his speed score 
if you look at it, was right just above league average. He just got a lot of opportunities last year. So they give him those again. He certainly's got to swipe some bases. So, you know, I think Ryan Braun has the tools certainly to repeat. Uh, you, you don't want to bet uh, on getting those kind of numbers again after a great season, but uh, I wouldn't bet on him slipping too much. A fifty mid fifty dollar value is really hard to repeat in, uh, for for anybody. It, uh, just everything fell into place for Ryan Braun last year. Thirty three home runs though could be a, a bit of a baseline. He had thirty seven in two thousand eight, and as you said, he seems to be getting more selective at the plate. His contact rate was seventy nine percent that year. It's up to eighty three percent last year. So he's seeing a, a little bit better pitches. He's being a little more choosy at the plate, drawing a few more walks. Uh, that I rate. You mentioned it's gone up from 026 uh, a few years ago all the way up to 062 last year, but 062 is really not a 300 hitter level of of I ratio, is it? No, it's not really. I think the thing that that just that stands out as you look at that is his line drive rate last year was 21 percent, and he's done 20 percent before. Uh, that might regress a little bit, but uh, but even then, 21 percent is not out of line for a line drive rate. I think. But Nick, back to the I ratio for a sec. For a batting average that far over 300, we'd expect an I ratio well over 1.0. That is more than one walk for every strikeout. Bronze I ratio was more like two walks for every three strikeouts, around 0.6 or so. We'd associate that with a batting average in the 270 range normally. But Braun also had tremendous power, and at BaseballHQ.com, we've proved that hitting the ball hard has a direct correlation to increasing hit rates and therefore increasing batting averages. And Braun certainly was hitting the ball hard. He had a power index over 170, and that's smoking it. That's Barry Bonds' level. It is indeed, and uh, uh, no reason. He's been there before, uh, 183 power index in 2007, 159 in 2008, so it's, again, not uh, uncharted territory for him. So I guess anything under 50 bucks looks like a bit of a bargain, possibly, even if he just repeats the year. He could be, uh, could be a source of profit even at that high level. Uh, Nick, Matt Gamel in spring training, a lot of people are wondering, with Prince Fielder gone, will Matt Gamel play a lot, and can he handle it if he does? You know, he's going to get a shot, certainly. I, there, there aren't a lot of alternatives over there in Milwaukee. So we're going to finally, I think, get to see Matt, what, what Matt Gamel can do in full-time full-time play. The real concern with Matt Gamble is can the guy make contact? In 2009, when he had 128 at-bats, his contact rate was 58%. Uh, so he's got he's got to cut down on the strikeouts uh, if he's going to be successful. Um, he's a, been a 300 career hitter in the minors, so there's there's a good pedigree there. But, uh, you know, here's a guy who's going to have to uh, have to get uh, make some contact with the ball if he's going to, uh, to stay in the lineup. And as you said, uh, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of alternatives there, although I've heard or read that Corey Hart, the outfielder, could maybe play some first base if somebody, and they've got a lot of motley sort of looking outfielders out there. Uh, they've got an import from Japan, Norishika Aoki's there. They've got Travis Ishikawa, who's a kind of slap-hitting first baseman. Brooks Conrad's in camp. He could play some. Does that mean Gamble is a real risk for, for the rotisserie player who has to draft early? You know, yeah, I think he, I think there is some risk there. On the other hand, he's age 26, which is a, a you know a good age. We expect some breakouts at that age. Uh, had a little bit of experience, so uh, uh, you know you, you might get Matt, get Matt Gamble cheap, and uh, he could actually pay off. And it looks as though he's got a good shot at least at a full time job. The other kind of big news was out of Houston, where they somewhat surprisingly announced that starting pitcher Brett Myers is going to be their new closer. What do we make of that news, and what do we think of his potential to succeed? You know, you look back at uh, Brett, Brett Myers was a closer for the Phillies in 2007, saved 21 games, um, had a fairly high 4.33 ERA, but a, a very good uh, good skills. I mean, in that year, 
2007, he struck out more than 10 batters per nine innings, uh, walking three and a half, um, and, and did a really good job. Uh, as a as a starter over the past four seasons, uh, that Dom rate uh, has come down a bit, as you would expect. I mean, he's not throwing as hard, certainly in the first inning, as when he knows he's got to go six or seven. So uh, Dom rate is down to 6.7. He's a little older. We might not see it go back over 10, but my guess is his Dom rate will go back up to around eight. Or, or, or perhaps higher when he's working just a single inning. Uh, always has had good control. Uh, you know, walking about two and a half guys, three guys per nine innings, so good control. The one knock on Myers has always been, the one thing that's gotten in his way, has been a, uh, a high uh, home run rate. Uh, here's a guy who generally is above uh, giving up one home run per nine innings, sometimes one and a half. Uh, home run per fly rate around 15 16%. Uh, gotten as high as 23% on him in 2009. Uh, that's the thing that tends to mess up his ERA. Uh, that's the thing that could be in, give him trouble uh, if he's uh, pitching the ninth inning or especially if he's coming in uh, with men on base uh, with the tendency to give up those home runs. So uh, that's going to be the stickler as usual with Brett Myers, but he certainly could be very successful, I think, as a closer. He's shown it before. Yeah, I'm worried a little bit about that home run rate as you are, Nick, because that's a that's a real home run hitter's park as well down in Houston. It is indeed, very definitely. Nick, at BaseballHQ.com, we're starting to talk about Lima targets for this year. Lima, low investment mound aces, a, a venerable idea that Ron Chandler came up with many years ago to focus on pitcher skills. And our starting pitching columnist, Stephen Nickrand, wrote a column targeting a whole bunch of starting pitchers who have those kind of skills but maybe a little bit lower profile than the usual suspects. And one of the names that he came up with from the New York Mets was Jonathan Knees. Isn't that interesting? It is indeed. I mean, Jonathan Neese, if you look back at the numbers last year, a 5.61 ERA, uh, a guy that you might think you'd want to stay away from. But uh, as, as Stephen pointed out, some incredible skills. If you look at uh, at his starts from just July to October last year, uh, almost nine strikeouts per nine innings, uh, walking less than two guys per nine innings, so excellent command, uh, doing a good job of keeping the ball in the park, just kind of a 10% home run per fly ratio. Uh, expected earn run average, 3.04 as opposed to that uh, 5.61 actual earned run average. What did him in was a 40% hit rate uh, and a 62% strand rate. Uh, and, of course, some of that could have been the bullpen. He certainly wasn't giving up too many home runs. Uh, so it could have been a bullpen problem uh, getting that strand rate uh, that strand rate down. In the first half, he had a 3.67 ERA, so it wasn't bad. He just kind of blew things up in the second half uh, with, with, I think, some bad luck. So I think Jonathan Neese is a good guy to target late in drafts. Last year, also, he had a bit of a problem with a rib cage strain that really brought his season to a close in late August, so his second-half numbers might have been skewed by that. We have to assume that given, uh, what, eight months or so to recover, rib cage strains are, are pretty tough for anybody because of the torque involved. But if that's all better, he was really headed in the right direction until that happened. So this, this does look like a guy who could be of interest to people in National League drafts. Yeah, very definitely. Someone to keep your eye on a guy who's got to go go cheap or go at the end of a draft and uh, someone I think worth uh, worth putting on your roster. Okay, Nick, thanks. We'll be catching up with you Monday night on our new satellite radio show, Baseball HQ, on Sirius XM Fantasy Channel. That's 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern on Mondays and Fridays with Jock Thompson and me, Sirius Channel 210, XM Channel 87, and you're going to be down in Tampa watching the Rays and the Jays. Yep, going down to start season spring training. So I'll be glad to talk to you again on Monday night. And, of course, next week here on Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks again, Nick. Thanks a lot.
Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League. It's BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Spring training games are underway, Patrick. They are, and it's a really an excellent time of year. You can start hearing some games on uh, the XM baseball play-by-play channels. It's just the best time of the year. Looking forward to draft. I had a draft just uh, last week, and while I don't know how I did, it was pretty exciting and interesting to actually be thinking about players' names and stuff. Matt, over in Seattle, the outfielder Franklin Gutierrez apparently has torn a pectoral muscle. He'll be out for four to six weeks and probably have some difficulty in recovery after that. Seems to open the door to a lot of questionable sort of outfield types in Seattle. Yeah, they had a question left field coming into the season, and now they're going to spread that battle over two positions. The one we like the best is Casper Wells. Uh, he's sort of an older prospect in the Ryan Ludwig, maybe Jose Bautista mode or so. Always had elite power index and a few stolen bases in the minors, but he has a very poor contact rate. He's swinging for the fences, so he's not really a batting average candidate. Last year only hit 237, which is about what you'd expect. But he did have a 153 PX in 2011, and, and he's always had a very high home run per at-bat. So if you need power, you got to hope Casper Wells is going to win out. It'll be difficult there at Safeco Field, but he's probably the prospect we like the best overall. The best uh, long-term prospect is probably Trayvon Robinson, who came over from the Dodgers. He's got a great power-speed combination, but also struggles making contact. So if you get him, you may get some counting stats, especially in the homer and stolen base category. But uh, his batting average is going to be a risk, and that's kept him from staying in the major leagues in his first two trials last year. Uh, Robinson also could be good trade bait for someone who overreacts to those homer and stolen base categories. And uh, so if you draft him thinking he's going to be a starter right now with all this noise here in the beginning of the season, someone may give you a more proven player for the hot prospect, Trayvon Robinson, who made our top 100 here at Baseball HQ. Michael Saunders was a top prospect. He's been around forever, it seems, but... He's only 25, but hasn't even hit 200 in the majors. So he's got a little bit of power, a pretty good fielder, but really hasn't established himself in the majors, and maybe we'll get another chance here in 2012. The wild card option is moving Sean Figgins to center and giving Kyle Seeger a shot at third base. Seeger doesn't offer power or speed, but he has an 82 contact rate. So he does get the bat on the ball, generally known as a pretty good fielder, and uh, probably that would be the most logical uh, thing the Mariners would like to do if the others aren't ready. Yeah, but if Kyle Seeger gets that job, he's subpar in power and speed by last year's stats. Uh, 80%, 80, mid-80s percent contact rate is fine, but with no power or speed, that doesn't gonna, that doesn't translate really well to the likelihood of real strong batting average, real strong RBI potential. I don't know. If Kyle Seeger gets the job, it could be one of those instances, couldn't it, where he's just a guy you can't roster even though he's got the, got the job? Only in AL-only leagues, and he's going to be like a Daniel Descalso type, um, whereas Wells and Robinson gives you the power upside, even Saunders somewhat. They do have the ability to, to get hot and uh, provide some offense, but they also, with that low contact rate they have, are prone to uh, long slumps and a low batting average. Over in Cleveland, Matt, Grady Sizemore, this poor guy, finally gets back last season and uh, right away this season now he's got a back problem he's going to be missing some time and again we open up the door to a lot of very questionable sort of candidates well again these are for deeper leagues or you know end game flyers Shelly Duncan had a great year last year power per bat again uh, usually it hit lefties betters but in 2011 really crushed righties with his power stroke so he's sort of another wild card guy that 
late bloomer and uh, really never had extended at-bats, but was very effective last year in the chances he got. Then you have disappointing Matt Laporta, who may get uh, a chance here with Casey Kochman taking over first base. Laporta has played outfield before, so he could go into left with Michael Brantley moving to center. Laporta does have a rising fly ball rate the last three years, so uh, you know you could say maybe he'll finally get some potential. And in the past, Laporta has shown good plate patience. Um, so a couple things to like about Laporta, certainly not someone you would depend on, but for a late-game flyer, you could take a shot at him. He's probably the, the most likely to break through and have some long-term value. Ryan Spielberg has put up some good numbers, but they were uh, based in Coors Field. be interesting to see what he could do on an everyday basis now that he's healthy again. He had some injuries last year. So nobody really exciting. Some guys you could take an endgame flyer on in Laporta, Duncan, and Spielborgs. Matt, it wasn't that long ago that Felix P.A. was uh, considered something of a rising star. He didn't really ever match the expectations. He's also in the mix, is he not? He is, and uh, he has offers some power and speed, but never really could get the contact rate going, never could play much for a batting average. And he has the advantage of those other three as being the only left-handed batter of those. So uh, if he has a good spring... Being the only left-handed bat, he could get the majority of the bats there in the field. Staying in Cleveland, the closer Chris Perez has hurt his left oblique. That's the kind of injury that can be really troublesome for a pitcher. He'll be out for an undetermined amount of time, but probably at least a month. All the signs point to Vinny Pestano being the, the likely inheritor of the closer role. Is that is that um, have they announced that that's the case? First of all, and then second, can they can we say that Vinny Pistano is going to be a success as a closer? Well, Pistano had a great year last year, striking out over 12 batters per nine innings. So he's certainly with the heir apparent. His expected area of 273 supports his effectiveness last year, but he did struggle against left-handed batters with a 280 batting average against. So he's got to figure out lefties. So Pistano would be the guy right now if they're willing to take a chance on a young guy. At the beginning of the season, they may prefer a hidden gem we talked about a couple weeks ago in Dan Wheeler, who has closed before, and they could say well, they want Wheeler to do it the first month till Perez comes back uh, and give Pastano another year and not want to you know, hand that job off to a young guy right at the beginning of the season. Now, Perez, even when he does come back, his BPIs were also bothersome last year, 5.9 dominance and an expected area of 473, had a very low hit rate that made him appear effective, and we had talked about him also being a guy, we talked about Wheeler, that Perez's BPIs really fell. His skills were really awful in 2011, and the question is whether he can rebound or whether that's uh, an indication of something to come. Wheeler makes an interesting case, doesn't he, because he's really off most everybody's radar at this point because he had a relatively uh, nondescript year in Boston last year, but Prior to that, in, in past seasons, especially in Tampa, he was a really solid relief pitcher. He always posts an excellent whip. His problem is keeping the ball in the park. He always gives up the long ball and uh, each of the last several years. So the question is, Cleveland generally is a pitcher's park, so that could help him, especially you know April, May, before the weather gets warm there, and then it helps again in September. During the summer, there gets a little humid, and there could be a little breeze blowing out to right. But uh, Wheeler has always had an excellent whip. He gets the ball over the plate. He challenges hitters. Not a huge strikeout guy, but, again, he's done this before, and the Tribe may want to start off while they're competitive in the beginning of the season when they have a chance to give Wheeler that shot, give the veteran, as opposed to throwing a rookie in, or, well, a second-year player into the mix. In 2008, Dan Wheeler had 13 saves. He was a $15 pitcher uh, based on a 1.00 whip and a 3.12 ERA, so he definitely has a little bit of a pedigree in this role at least. Absolutely. I said they, they could opt for that experience 
as opposed to going with the skills of Pistano, especially if Pistano struggles against lefties in spring training again. Staying in the closer role in Oakland, of course, they traded Andrew Bailey, the incumbent, to Boston for another big pile of outfielders mostly to add to their collection. But, of course, that leaves the role open in uh, the bullpen in Oakland and looks like the leading candidate should be Grant Balfour, but right now on the depth charts it looks like it's Brian Fuentes with Joey Devine hanging around the, the fringes. How do you make this race? Well, Balfour certainly has the skills to do it. He strikes out nearly a batter in an inning. Uh, his control is pretty good. Last year he had a 247 ERA, which is probably a little uh, lower than you would expect. His expected ERA was 345. Um, but he's still a very solid pitcher. He's got a nice command ratio of 3 to 1 strikeouts to walks the last couple years. Uh, he did have a high strand rate, but that's typical of a, of a bullpen arm. He had a low hit rate in 2011, which gave him that artificially low ERA. But I would say that he's certainly got a lot better skills and the ability to get both lefties and righties out. Fuentes has been more of a lefty specialist, and most managers frown on lefty closers anyway. Uh, not that that's right, that's just the way they do it. And Devine really hasn't established himself since his injury uh, in the last couple of years. So I would think Balfour should be the clear favorite there in Oakland. And what about the long-shot Fatino de Los Santos? Uh, been seeing his name in a few places as, a, as somebody to maybe gamble on or reserve. Well, again, in a very end-game situation or an AL-only league, those are the kind of guys you take a shot on to see if they get a chance. And uh, Billy Bean has manufactured closers before and traded them. And I would expect, even if Balfour does win the role, there's obviously a very good possibility, he's certainly in his low 30s, that uh, if he does well in the role, he certainly would become trade bait here come summertime. Well, he had a dominance rate of 11.6 strikeouts per nine last season in the big leagues in around 33 innings. That's that's getting a lot of uh, accomplishment out of a limited amount of playing time. Absolutely, and that's why we look at the ratio so much more than just the gross number of strikeouts. Also a little bit of trouble with the walks, up around five walks per nine, which cuts down on his command ratio a little bit. But Fatino de Los Santos may be a name for people to file away in the back of their mind for the end game, especially in American League-only leagues. Staying in Oakland and staying with guys named Sizemore, we talked about Grady Sizemore being hurt and out for a while. Scott Sizemore, the, the news was much worse, Matt. He's done for the year with an ACL tear. He is, and Oakland doesn't really have the depth to handle that. There's some talk of Miguel Tejada coming back to where he started. But right now, you have to look at Adam Rosales as the most likely guy to step in. He did have seven homers and 255 at-bats in 2010. Uh, last year, only got 61 at-bats, so not really much we can tell. But he does have some pop. He does have some speed. So Rosales would be the most likely one to step in there. Eric Sogard is a, a deeper name to tuck away. He makes decent contact. Uh, but being a rookie and, and not really having any other extreme skill that we should look at, Rosales is probably the most likely to take those at-bats at this point. And it would be interesting to see Miguel Tejada go back to Oakland and, and maybe get a few last swings out of a career. Uh, I remember having him in two different Stratomatic leagues as an Oakland A when he came up, so it would be really uh, neat to see him go back and finish his career where he started. I had him on a championship-level uh, fantasy team as well many years ago as a shortstop. And finally, before we let you go, Matt, I'm curious what you think about Curtis Granderson of the Yankees. This is a guy who was in the MVP running and deservedly so last year, had a fantastic season. And, of course, the question coming into 2012 after a big breakout like that is, is there any chance this guy can repeat? And if there is, what are the likelihood? There is a chance, but it's a slight one, I would say. His contact rate has declined the last four years, and not just declined. It's went from 80% to 71%. That's a huge drop-off. Last year, his home run per fly ball went from an average of 
of in the 12, 13% neighborhood to 21%. So to expect him to maintain that at this stage of his career is really unlikely. His stolen base opportunities almost doubled in 2011. So seeing the stolen bases repeat itself could be an unusual event and that'd be something difficult to count on. And the question is, can he maintain his gains against left-handed pitchers? He always had struggled against them and suddenly hit 272 in 2011. I know he worked with the batting coach to make some adjustments specifically to correct that, and he has done so. The question is, do left-handed pitchers then adjust to Granderson's new approach and make it more difficult in 2012 to repeat that average? I agree with you about the average, Matt, but I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, the uh, new New York Yankee Stadium plays a lot more favorably to left-handed hitters, especially guys who can pull, which Granderson can't. And so I'm wondering if you think there's any sort of baseline to his home runs based on the fact that he gets to play in such a favorable environment and the other question is about stolen base opportunity you mentioned it but that's kind of a function of how the team is run by the management and by the on-field manager and if they're willing to let a guy run 18 percent of the time because that's their philosophy doesn't that indicate that maybe he'll get another 18 percent chance this year and maybe be close to or, or right around that 2021 stolen base mark a second time well, he can. A couple of things I would say is, first of all, he played in Yankee Stadium in 2010 as well. So it's not like we only have one year. He wasn't outstanding in 2010 by any means, hitting 247 with only 24 homers. So the stadium effect, I think, because he only plays half his games there, yes, it helps him. But uh, I, don't, I think asking him to suddenly repeat 41 home runs again, I think, would be a long shot. As far as stolen bases, I agree with you. Um, I don't think the Yankees are a running team. It's not like he went to the Angels, who run a lot. Yes, he could get the same green light, assuming he's just as healthy in 2011, or excuse me, 2012 as he was in 2011, getting all those at-bats. Uh, if he has it, tweaks a groin or tweaks a hammer, I'm really careful when I see a stolen base spike like that because he got to play every day as well as getting the opportunities. I think the opportunities tells him that the manager gave him the green light. The question is, will he get that? I don't like to pay for that same amount next year because things can happen that won't allow him to be as healthy and won't give him that green light as often. The home away splits for Curtis Granderson are pretty interesting, Matt. If we're tempted to think that New Yankee Stadium was such a benefit to him, listen to these. Uh, home runs at home, 21. On the road, 20. Batting average at home, 262. On the road, 263. Slugging percentage, 563 at home, 543 on the road, OPS 921 to 911. So whatever he was doing, he was doing it everywhere he played. Yes, it is, and that's why sometimes we got to look at the ballpark effect and not overrate them. Again, remembering that only half the games are played in that home park. Uh, so in his case, I would say he's shown consistency in 2011. Can he repeat that in 2012? The odds say that at his age, to suddenly keep this career spike going, um, is more unlikely than likely. So that's the way I would certainly discount him a bit if I was valuing him for auction or for draft. Uh, some people draft him in the first round, and I just think he's not had the reliable production you would have with that kind of valuation. True enough, Matt. You have a market pulse commentary later in this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. What's your topic this week? Unusual one. We're going to compare the how the Republican Party is choosing their delegates for the president and how that impacts your fantasy baseball strategy. All right, Matt. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Part two of our feature interview with Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball, comes up next. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, one of the minor league analysts at Baseball HQ. 
I'm also the co-author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors. Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012 and at the same time an online update of the top 50 fantasy prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be rejoined for our second week with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. Great read if you're a fantasy baseball owner, or if you just like baseball, or if you just like good reading. Gene, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Hello, everybody. <laughs> let's go. All right, let's get on with it. Last week we ran out of time before we could start talking about specific players, and one of the joys of Wise Guy Baseball is reading your player commentaries because they're they're insightful, but they're also really funny. But before we get started, this is something that wasn't in Wise Guy Baseball this year because you couldn't have known about it. Manny Ramirez signs in Oakland. What do you think? I think he'll be good for about 10 minutes and then disappear. Um, I could start a Billy Bean rant here that, he seems to be getting a free ride, don't you think? I mean, he hasn't really done very much except churn players back and forth, and I don't quite get this one with a team that's supposed to be rebuilding, but Manny's still Manny. I'm sure he can still bang a left-handed pitcher, so I guess he'll be good until he uh, goes down on, when would that be, July 2nd. Probably won't be too long. When I saw the news of the signing, I thought, gosh, it's it's like the ninth or 10th outfield slash DH guy that they have in camp now, and at a certain point, you know, it's starting to remind me of, remember the old Tampa Bay experiment with all those sluggers? They had four DHs in the line at one Castilla, point. Jose Canseco, and... Greg Vaughn was one of them, I think. Greg Vaughn, that's the name I was thinking for. Thank you, Patrick. They realize that at some point somebody's got to pick up a glove out here and... and uh... <laughs> The uh, experiment failed, and uh, notwithstanding Manny's great play when he climbed up the wall and shook hands with that guy en route to catching the ball, he's not much with the leather, obviously a DH, but I don't know how they fit all those guys together. Uh, Jason Bay in Wise Guy Baseball Gene, you said, uh, could be a sleeper, and I thought, at 281 years old, that's a deep sleep. They're bringing the fences in. He's always been a very streaky player. As long as I'm getting good... Uh, health reports in March. I think he makes a nice fourth outfielder in uh, in a mixed league, and I think he's going to be available there. So um, I think he's worth a shot. Also could get traded um, if the Mets don't play well. Um, but I think with the fences coming in and his propensity for streak and slump having about exhausted the slump, um, yeah, I think he's good speculation. And a Canadian guy, so you got to like that. Also, not a bad speed source. I, you noted in Wise Guy Baseball that this is a guy who very quietly gets you double-digit bags pretty much every year. Yeah, and very rarely caught stealing, and, and that's always been true for him. And, yeah, it's a nice little bonus, and if he plays every day, he's going to steal 10-15, and we know that that's, that could be the difference. 
Gene, one of the big stories, of course, in the offseason was the signing of Prince Fielder in Detroit and the announcement that they're going to move Miguel Cabrera rightward on the defensive spectrum over to third base. He says he's down for it. The early reports are that he's dropped 25 pounds down to about 300. So the question is, what do you think are going to be the effects of this position change and how should we calibrate the move as far as fantasy is concerned? Well, the first thing that we have is he's going to be third base eligible. Um, this in itself would make him the number one pick as far as I'm concerned. I do not think that playing third base is going to affect his hitting because this is a I mean, there's no way to quantify psychology. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't pay any attention to anyone who attempted to do it. However, um, Cabrera has shown that he is as inflappable, unflappable a hitter as there is. I mean, he's had other controversies before, and he just sails right through, plays his 160 games a year. I expect him to be a bad third baseman, and I expect it to not make the slightest bit of difference to his hitting. I think he's. I think he is the number one, should be the number one pick this year, unless Braun doesn't get suspended. What about the injury risk? A guy out there, you know, not exactly fleet of foot, you can see him maybe tweaking an arm or something, trying to make that long throw across the diamond. Is that a concern to you? Well, I mean, anybody can get hurt. The only thing I can go by is his track record, and his track record is he plays. And and I think that's got to count for, for the most of it. I mean, it's not like you never get any action at first base either. You probably get more action at first base. So, yeah, I mean, the, the balls can be hit just as hard and are hit just as hard, maybe a couple more at third base because there's more right-handed batters. But I don't think it's a – no, I, I don't think it's worth – any more concerned than any other player, put it that way. You had a nice uh, little write-up about Craig Gentry, the Texas outfielder, a useful speed guy in the end game, and now there's some reports that they may want to have him play a little more than we might have expected because they don't want Hamilton out there for injury risks of his own. Yeah, I, when I wrote that, I was thinking that he was going to be their fifth outfielder. Um, and I've seen reports that he may even be the starting center fielder. Um which I think is very exciting. He's yet to be caught stealing in the major leagues. He's a fantastic fielder, probably the best center fielder in the game today. I'm not sure that he's uh, going to be a great hitter. Um, you know, as I said in Wise Guy, I said he could be, he could do what Michael Bourne has done, and he could do what um, Bourbon was supposed to do. Um, I don't think he'll be a disaster with the bat. I think he's got enough skills to slap the ball on the ground and get on first base enough. He'll also pinch run. Um, I'm not sure at this point that he's a mixed-league play. He's certainly a good mixed-league reserve at this point. I think we'll know more um, as spring training develops. I would definitely throw a few dollars at him in an AL league, though, even as a pinch runner. I think he's going to steal 20 bases. So, So don't let him go for a buck. Jason Wirth had a stinker last year, but you say you expected it and that that bad 2011 could make a buying opportunity for 2012. Absolutely. He's another of the high strikeout fly ball hitters who show a lot of swing in their batting average. Um, they go for long streaks and long slumps, and he was due for the long slump, and he had it. And I, I think he, he is getting a little older, but he's still got his legs. He's still got his power. I think his batting average bounces back to about 265-ish this year, which means he's going to do 25-25. He's going to drop down in public estimation. He's a nice bounce-back candidate, yes. 
Logan Morrison had some bad publicity last year, and uh, you write that he's a bargain for sure in CDM challenge-type games, but also in rotisserie and, and regular fantasy auction-type games. Uh, what do you like about Logan Morrison so much? Before last year, uh, my question for him was when were the doubles and triples going to turn into home runs? I had envisioned him as a, a sort of Nick Morcakis type. Um, but they turned into home runs last year. I mean, hit 23 home runs less than a full season. Um, so that question is answered, and I think that this year uh, we're going to see his batting average potential. The lineup is better. Um, he's not helpless against left-handed pitching. He's not great against them, but at his age, I think his OPS is in the low 700s. It's something to build on. It's not a disaster. And I think that he's going to play more this year, get it together, and despite the fact that it's not good, it doesn't look like it's going to be great hitter's park. Well, last year's wasn't a great hitter's park either. So I think this year he's going to hit about 25 home runs and push 300. And sure, bring it on. Staying in Florida, Jose Reyes, is there too much risk there despite all that talent? I think so. Um, I know I can lose by not owning Jose Reyes. But then I consider that his main category is speed, and it is not scarce in today's game. And there's just too much injury risk. I, when I'm building the foundation, I want my first three hitters to be rock solid as far as durability is concerned, or as durable as, you know, I mean, anything can happen, but have a demonstrated record of durability. And then I fear I can take my chances later on. And that's just too much risk for me. I do not want to go delving into the Trevor Plouffe market. <laughs> and talk, talking about uh, Jose Reyes uh, and staying in Florida, Hanley Ramirez uh, at first said he was going to be fine with moving over to third base. Then more recently now he says, well, he's not 100% on board, or Ozzie Guillen has said that on his behalf. You've talked about the advantage of owning Hanley Ramirez, even though you hate him, which is a funny way of putting it. Yes, well, I, I think that um, I regard it as an opportunity when the public hates a player who's good. And I go back to Roberto Alomar and Gary Sheffield and even Barry Bonds. Sometimes, especially it was probably more true in those days, that they were available for a few bucks less than they should have gone because people just didn't like them. Um, this is true of Hanley um, because he clearly has an attitude problem. But he's got great numbers. Um I think he, last year was clearly injury-driven. I think he's an excellent bet, perhaps the best bet of anybody to bounce back. There's a reason people he was one of the top three picks last year. Um, and I think he's going to get back to that. I think he is a selfish player, which means nothing to me. Um, I think it's actually good that he's a selfish player. He wants to accumulate statistics, and that's what I want him to do too. So what he's like in the clubhouse, I don't care. I think the worst-case scenario for him this year is that he moans and groans a little too much and gets traded, upon, and then he'll go and do the same thing somewhere else. So, yeah, as long as he's healthy in March, um, I don't care what his attitude is. I just care what his numbers are going to be. Besides, Patrick, if you hate the guy and you don't own him and he beats you, you're only going to hate him more. It's an excellent point. Do you, are you are you worried about uh, his stolen base production has been declining fairly steadily the last couple of years? He's not getting any younger. Are you are you worried at all about uh, Hanley Ramirez as a stolen base threat? 
Well, I'm not looking for him to steal a ton of bases. I'm, I'd be very happy with him to steal 25. What I'm looking for him is a solid five categories. I, I'm looking for his power to bounce back. I'm looking for him to hit 300 in the middle of the lineup with that, and so be a five-category player. Whether he's, I, I don't expect him to steal. Certainly, I don't expect him to steal more than 30, and I'd be quite content with 25. And you mentioned it's quite a lineup. Uh, I seem to be doing the entire Miami offense here, but what about Mike Stanton? You say this is a MVP candidate. I do. Um, he is a special player. Special players do special things. What really impresses me about him is the way he's just he's a baseball player. He's not a talent that needs to be developed. You know, I'm sure your listeners know that his one flaw is that he is contact, but we've seen it many, many times. It's not a fatal flaw. Um, comes with the package. I think he's going to hit 40 home runs. I mean, you could basically write it down. Um, I don't think his batting average is going to hurt. I think it's going to be neutral. He'll steal some bases. He'll be in the middle of a lineup. He's just a great player. He's a really good defensive player. He runs really well for a big guy. His head is in the game. I think he's one of those guys where you can do go the extra buck. He's a special player. Special players do special things. Joey Votto, also a special player. I remember at first pitch Arizona, somebody said that in all of 2011, he did not hit one infield fly ball. That's beautiful. I mean, to me, that shows a, a hitter who is completely in command of his game. Um, he goes the other way. Uh, great opposite field power, which is a, which is an ass, such an asset in Cincinnati because it's short and left center field. He's not the most exciting of the first round players. But I think that he's a legitimate, true first-round, consistent, durable, four categories and a couple of steals. Take him. Be happy. If if people think he's boring, great. And uh, Brian McCann is going in the early mock drafts so far this year, Gene, in the mid to late third round, early fourth round. And I suspect you think that's a little early for Brian McCann. Yes, I think it's crazy. Um, I don't like drafting catchers high to begin with, as a general rule. I don't want to be absolute about it. Um, But in McCann's case, he does not have the advantage that several other catchers this year have. Santana, um, Victor until he got hurt. Uh, Maurer has this advantage, and Buster Posey may have it, is that they're basically going to play every day. McCann does not do that, and therefore McCann's production is just not what you need when you're in the third round. In fact, I wouldn't take him in the fifth round. Um, I would take the three that I mentioned um, there and possibly Maurer. Uh, Maurer's a really hard case. Um, But in general, besides the elevated injury risk for catchers, they just don't play enough. They don't produce enough. If they are DHing or playing first base when they're not catching, that's a different story. That elevates them. Um, But I think the opportunities there this year will be Posey and possibly Maurer. Um, If you're willing to except that Maurer's going to hit 10 home runs. Um, If you think he's going to bounce back to the plus 300 level, the way he's been falling, I think he's worth a shot. Andrew McCutcheon, Gene, a couple years ago, you'll remember at first pitch Arizona in November at the Arizona Fall League, this guy looked like an absolute superstar in the making. And in 2011, he really seemed to be putting it all together, power, speed, average. He had the whole package. And then in September, boom, he collapsed like uh, Jose Canseco in the boxing ring. What do we do now when we're looking at Andrew McCutcheon? Well, I agree with you. I, I think he's a superstar in the making. And 
it does give me a little pause what he did in September, but I think it was just that he ran out of gas. Um, what I liked about him all last year was that as the season went on, he kept getting better and better and better until that September. And I think I'm going to take five months over one month. Um, what I expect from him this year, I do not expect a breakout, but I expect him to do basically what he did last year and then most likely break out in 2013. But anybody who wants to bet on 2012, I am not going to argue with you. I think he's a legit second-rounder. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. Gene, let's move over to the pitcher's side. Uh, you like Alfredo Aceves. Yeah, I think that um, he's one of the guys where a superficial uh, reading of the statistics says he's going to regress. And I actually do agree with that. I think he's going to regress, too. I just don't think he's going to regress that much. And we're not talking about a foundation player here. He's a guy, he's a mixed-league reserve, but he's a good mixed-league reserve, especially if if there's any talk at all about him joining the Boston rotation. Um, But even if he doesn't join the rotation, I think he's going to give solid solid middle innings, the sort of thing that in a mixed-league, when one of your starters has a rough week, is pitching in Yankee Stadium or something, you throw in a save is throw a save is in and and he'll give you some quality innings and I and I'm going back to the old meaningless one lost record. This guy is 24 and three in his career, and I know that one lost records don't mean that much, but they mean something. If a pitcher was three and 24, that would mean something. I know he's got a good team. The other thing I want to say, especially to the HQ uh, listeners, is that pitcher's skills are not carved in stone. He's still a young guy. He can get better. And I think he's going to. Zach Greinke was a Cy Young winner a couple of years ago, moved over to the National League last year. Gene, he had just a terrible start. He was up around six for an ERA, and he had a better finish. And I'm wondering which of those you think is the real Zach Greinke, and how does that affect his likely valuation by other owners at uh, at auctions and drafts in 2012? I think it's a combination of the two. I think that he's uh, he's a legitimate number two pitcher. But I hesitate to use him as a number one. I think he's a little too hittable, um, and he throws a lot of strikes, and that's, generally speaking, a very good thing. But that's a ballpark where you don't want to make mistakes, and I think he's inevitably, when you throw that many strikes, some of them are going to be mistakes, and they'll take care of it. There's one other thing that I might mention that might make me wrong about that, and that's that the uh, the division is not as strong as it was. It's not as true for the Brewers, of course, and he's a Brewer, uh, but it is true for other pitchers in the National League Central. They lost... Pujols, they've lost Fielder, and if Braun is suspended for 50 games, those are the three best hitters in the division. Um, makes pitchers on the Reds a little more attractive, on the Pirates, if you can stand it, and the Cardinals. Uh, but yeah, Granke, number good number two pitcher, hesitate to go any higher than that. Josh Johnson in Miami, for a while there looked like he might be shaping into a, the kind of guy you'd always want on your roster. Now you're saying that probably not in uh, a National League-only league, maybe better in mixed. Yeah, he's better in a league where you don't have to rely on him that much. Um, I love him. I think he's as good a pitcher as anybody in baseball. Um, He burned me last year. Um, 
means that in a mixed league, I don't think he can be any better than your third best pitcher. Um, but if he is your third best pitcher, he's probably worth a little reach to do that because if you get 25 starts out of Josh Johnson, I think you're going to win the pitching categories. So, as if you don't know as long, you don't have to rely on him. And the reason I say that in an NL league, you know, these uh, te- leagues with 13 teams and 10 pitcher slots, you are really going deep. If you have to play the fab market in an NL league, you're in big trouble. So you can't, the Josh Johnsons of the world have to be devalued further in uh, in NL only leagues. In Toronto, they have a young guy who looked really good at the tail end of last year, Henderson Alvarez. Kind of a low strikeout rate, but everything else about him you seem to like. Yeah, uh, well, his control was phenomenal, and it's probably a little bit of an illusion, but it's what they call signature significance. Unless you have really good control, you don't you don't throw up the numbers that he did. He's also an extreme ground ball pitcher, which is nice, and it goes well with the control. And it puts a little bit, it's a little less of a risk to be in the AL East when you're an extreme ground ball pitcher with all the power-hitting monsters. Now, were he in the National League, I'd be all over this guy. But as it is now, I think that you got to throw a few bucks at him in the AL. In fact, I'd throw more than a few bucks at him. I think I'd probably go to 8 or $9 in an AL League. And a definite um, mixed league reserve pick potential. Matt Garza of the Cubs was the talk of trade rumors for a while. Of course, the Cubs suffered through another bad year. But Matt Garza, kind of quietly and, and below the radar in a lot of respects, had a really good year. Yeah, he did. And uh, the team did disguise it as far as wins are concerned and, and the quality. But, um, you know, 14 home runs allowed pitching in Wrigley Field is mighty impressive. Um, the fact that he is likely to get traded this year, uh, I mean, it's a net plus as far as gambling is concerned, taking a shot at him. Um, I think he's a legitimate number two pitcher, and he's not going to go there. And I mean, I would certainly, in an NL league, I would certainly bid him up to $18 and maybe a little more if I was pushed. Um, he's right in the prime. He's 28 years old. Uh, his control's been getting better. He strikes out a lot of guys, doesn't miss his starts. Sure. If I had to pick one guy, you know, surprise, top five Cy Young guy this year, I'd probably say Matt Garza. As a surprise, that is. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. Gene, a couple of relief pitchers from 2011, successful ones, are going to be trying to move into the rotation. Actually, three of them. Uh, Daniel Bard comes to mind, Aaron Crow comes to mind, and Naftali Feliz comes to mind. Uh, of the three of them, who do you like as having uh, the best chance at becoming a successful starter? Did we did we did you say Sale, and did you say Araldus Chapman? Throw them in too if you like. Yeah, um, I think that Sale's got the best chance, um, and Neftali. Um, this is really interesting in, in general in, in baseball, and, and something that I think that we all ought to watch, um, not only as rotisserie players but as fans, because um, this is what Earl Weaver used to do. Um, break in the uh, young pitcher as a reliever and then move him into the rotation. And he did it successfully. Um, I'm happy with the success that C.J. Wilson had and Ogando had in Texas, and I think it's going to continue. I think it's a really good idea. Um, and I think that the pitchers that you mentioned, all of them have great stuff. Um, I don't know if I'd like to build an entire rotation on them, but if you want to do something crazy... You could do worse than that. I have them all. Um, 
high up on their in their in their tiers on my list, and I'm probably going to wind up with a couple of them this year. Um, they just have great stuff. Uh, of course, they probably won't throw as hard when they get into the rotation, but I don't think it matters, Patrick. I think that they're they're all really good bets, with the possible exception of Chapman, but he probably has the best stuff of all of them. And certainly, you know, as a reserve pick, go ahead and take it. He's a guy that, you know, if he walks four, four and a half batters per nine innings, he's going to dominate. He's not going to just be good, he'll dominate. There's not that many pitchers you can say that about. So, yeah, I, uh, let's take a shot. Let's go with the new. In this edition, uh, 2012's Wise Guy Baseball Gene, you talked about Dan Heron and what you referred to as his flattening rate of ground balls, line drives, and fly balls. And uh, first of all, um, what does that mean for his value, do you think? And second of all, could you briefly go through the uh, unfair um, mark that's put on pitchers with high fly ball ratios as being uh, risky or unworthy? Because I think you're exactly right about that, and I think people should hear about it. Yes, um, it's not quite as simple as ground ball good, fly ball bad. Um, ground ball pitchers have lower ERAs and get a few more wins but fly ball pitchers have lower whips and get more strikeouts. This is true every year. Um, any way you care, any way I do actually thrash it out. I do, do I actually do a study every year in Wise Guy, and it was true again with the same pattern this year. Um, I think that um, if a fly ball, if a fly ball pitcher's, you know, it's a, a fly ball pitcher in a in a great home run park. Obviously, you don't want him. If he's in a big park, obviously you do want him. Um, Dan Harron. Well, what you see a lot of times with pitchers who are really good pitchers is that as they get older um, and they get more command, they can get the type of batter ball that they want. And I think we're seeing this with Dan Harron. We saw it with Pedro Martinez. Um, this is, I mean, this shows real skill in a pitcher. Um, generally speaking, it's the pitchers who are in the middle the pitchers who are not extreme ground bowlers or extreme fly bowlers who are not as good as the guys on the fringes. Um, but with a truly great pitcher, that's not true. And I think Harron is coming into that class now where he can get the kind of batted ball that he wants, and that makes, that's his master's degree as a pitcher. Staying in Anaheim, Jared Weaver, you ask in the book, if we can grant Weaver a skill, in quotation marks, in his 7% home run per fly ball rate because he's been doing it for five straight years, and at some point we have to say there's something to it, that it's not just luck that he's under 10. Absolutely. Um, and in this particular case, uh, the low fly ball to home run rate, the first thing that I think we should look at is the infield pop-ups. Because if you're getting a lot of infield pop-ups, your home run to fly ball rate is going to be very low. Um, this is true of Colmenter, by the way, on Arizona. But if a pitcher has demonstrated over five years that he can keep the ball in the park, even as a fly ball pitcher, we have to grant him that skill. We have to say this is not, this is not luck. And it isn't. Why do you think there's the resistance to that idea? Is it what you said uh, last week and wrote about in Wise Guy Baseball that uh, sometimes it's the experts who are the last people to willing to change their minds? That's right. I think it, it violates the orthodoxy, and I think part of it is laziness. Part of it, they'll look at that, and they won't look at the four years before. Um, yeah, and they're they're caught up in their own little formulae, and... 
we shouldn't be. And we'll benefit if we're not. Time for one more pitcher. Jaime Garcia of St. Louis is a guy that you uh, have your eye on. Uh, tell us why. Well, I mean, he's also a ground ball pitcher. I think his whip will be a little high relative to his ERA, but his ERA is going to be low. Uh, we mentioned before that the, the division is weaker. Um, also, last year, uh, I mean, he had a fine year, and it was actually better than it looked because he had one horrible start in Coors Field. I think he gave up 10 runs and two and a third innings or something like that. Um, but I think he's been well-trained. He throws strikes. Uh, he knows what he wants to do up and down. Great change-up. But I think we're going to get nice three really good categories from him and then an acceptable whip, if not great. And, again, he's not a thrilling guy. He doesn't dominate, uh, but he's good. Do you give any uh, extra bonus points when you're looking at a player who, because he plays in an organization where the coaching is good, do you give credence to the Leo Mazzone effect or the Dave Duncan effect in the case of Jaime Garcia? Uh, I, de- I definitely do. Um, it's kind of be, going to be interesting to see what happens this year without Duncan. But uh, this guy had just such a long record of turning pitchers around that you have to. In fact, to me, if a guy went over to the Cardinals, I mean, he was worth a few bucks just based on that, no matter how bad he was. And, you know, Patrick, there was, I don't know if there was a worse pitcher over a longer period of time than Kyle Loesch. And look at him last year. He came out on top. If they can do that with with a guy like that, with a uh, with a ten year record of sub mediocrity, uh, tip your hat and throw a few bucks at the guy just on general principles. Exactly right, Gene. Thanks very much for talking with us these last two weeks. It's been great. And uh, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can find out more about Wise Guy Baseball, the book, and about the website. Uh, go to wiseguybaseball dot com, and you'll read about the ordering information. And as I say, for the $40 that includes shipping and it gets your website access all year where you can rant and rave at me uh, if you think I'm wrong and and the guys that are on this website are really sharp cookies so you'll benefit just from reading what they say and, and joining in so please do alright Gene thanks very much for doing this we'll try to catch up with you again at least once during the year as well it's a great pleasure Patrick thank you All right, Gene McCaffrey, WiseGuyBaseball.com and the Wise Guy Baseball annual baseball book. Tremendous reading and lots of wisdom there. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Simmons works. Camacho swinging. It's a whistling line drive to left center field. It's a base hit. It's taken on the second hop by Ripple. The throw is coming in a second. Camacho is racing for it. Camacho makes it with a slide and it's saved for a double. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about the Nationals' third base prospect, Anthony Rendon. The Washington Nationals' Anthony Rendon will be a fun player to watch this spring. Rendon was the sixth overall pick in the 2011 draft after a three-year standout career at Rice University. Rendon entered the season as the odds-on favorite to be the first player taken in the draft, but a sore shoulder limited his production, and when teams were not convinced he was 100%, he slipped to the Nationals in the sixth spot, where they have to be very happy with him. When Rendon's physical turned up a clean bill of health, the Nationals gave the third baseman a four-year, $7.2 million major league deal. The Nationals drafted Rendon despite the presence of all-star third baseman Ryan Zimmerman, and ever since there has been rampant speculation about where Rendon will play once he reaches the majors. 
Rendon is a plus defender with good range, a strong throwing arm, and very soft hands. Offensively, he had the best power of any player in the draft last year. He hit 20 home runs as a freshman and 26 as a sophomore. Because of the shoulder injury, Rendon was limited to just six home runs in his junior season, but scouts remain convinced that he will hit 20-plus home runs a year once he reaches the majors. Rendon also has plus plate discipline and walked 80 times while striking out just 33, giving him the potential to hit for power and average. This spring, Rendon has been fielding ground balls at shortstop and second base and has drawn rave reviews. If the Nationals decide to move Rendon to second base, he has the potential to deliver the kind of production that made Chase Utley a household name. Wherever he plays, the Nationals' Anthony Rendon has the potential to be an impact player and should be rostered in all keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During spring, Rob Gordon has organizational reports and scouting columns, and Jeremy Deloney has reports on top prospects. This week, the site has Jeremy's column on top second base prospects. In season, Rob and Jeremy have prospect updates, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about how the Republican primary system could affect your fantasy baseball strategy. In watching the Republican primaries, it's really interesting to see the different ways delegates are chosen for the convention. In some states, the winner takes all the delegates, and in others, proportional representation is used. wonder how this affects the candidate strategies. If you're the front-runner and a winner-take-all states, it's great, but if you're a second, third, or fourth-place candidate, you may not want to spend much time and effort there because you're not going to get any delegates anyway. But if it's a proportional state and you're a challenger, you can gather a lot of delegates and hope to focus later on a winner-take-all state or two where you're really strong. How does this affect fantasy baseball? Well, you have to decide when you're going to spend that top dollar and top draft pick on someone who gives you consistent production or if you're really going to try to make a breakthrough with that player's evolution. We would maintain that in the top rounds and the most expensive auction players, you want the reliable production. You don't want to try to project that breakthrough. We all overvalue younger players. And therefore, the reason people undervalue younger players is they're projecting them to achieve a level they've never achieved before. The time to do that is in the middle to end of the draft or the middle to end of the auction where the cost is much lower and therefore your payoff much higher. At that point in the draft, the reliable candidates may not have any upside. And that's the time to then try to find a younger player, project them to grow, to break through, to be the surprise candidate that carries your team. But to do that at the top of your draft or at the most expensive player of your auction is almost a certain losing proposition. This also applies to pitching as well. Trying to pick Justin Verlander to try to dominate your league and go counter to what everyone else is doing is very risky and your chances of reward are very slim. You want to save your pitchers for later in the draft or later in the auction when you can spread your risk among them in hopes for a better chance of a breakthrough as opposed to paying for a breakthrough that may or may not come and can't result in profits. With a Market Pulse, I'm Matt Beagle for Baseball HQ and HQ Radio. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about putting punting into perspective. 
When it comes to preparing for your rotisserie draft, there is one topic that invariably comes up every year. Should you punt categories? Now, the common wisdom is that it's a bad idea, but I think you need to put it into its proper perspective. In planning for your draft or auction, you should go in with a high-level strategy. This might include focusing on position scarcity, or allocating your auction dollars in a certain way, or, or having some goals for the end game. Once the draft begins, these plans should represent your roadmap. However, events during the draft often force you to alter those plans. Players going for more than you anticipated, getting closed out on certain positions, things like that. It is because of this uncertainty that you also need to have some tactical plans in place. These tactics are things you can employ to keep your draft on track. When it comes to punting categories, there is the question as to whether it is a viable strategy or more of a tactic. I rarely see the situation when you want to go into your draft expecting to give up any commodity. Periodically in keeper leagues, there might be an occasion where it makes sense, but never really in redraft leagues. Tactically, well, that's another story. There may be times during your draft when you find yourself getting closed out of a certain category. At that point, you have two choices, chase those stats or punt them. A lot depends on the stage of the draft and the available talent out there. A lot also depends on the stat you'd be chasing. The decision is a lot different when you need to get saves as opposed to home runs. Let me share two personal experiences. Last year in Tout Wars, I found myself rostering hitters with questionable batting averages. Forget Adam Dunn for a moment, but I was faced with the choice of overpaying for Ichiro Suzuki or moving on. I decided at that point to forget about batting average, just let it go, embrace the bad BA. And, of course, Dunn obliged magnificently. What did this do for me? Well, for one, it opened up my mind to consider players like Mark Reynolds, who tend to get undervalued because of their low batting averages. But the best part of the BA category is that it is highly volatile. As much as I thought I had punted it, all it takes is a few overperformers and some good in-season management to pick up some easy points. I actually finished sixth in batting average last year. The other experience was this past January in the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Experts League draft. After rostering Curtis Granderson in round two and Cameron Mabin in round eight, the major speed sources were pretty much gone. So rather than chase more questionable stolen bases too early, I opted to punt. This helped me better target the rest of the player pool and stock up on power, which has become a scarcer commodity these days. Let the bags fall where they may. One thing you will notice this year is that there is a ton of speedy guys who fall out of the ADP rankings because they have warts in their skill set or don't have a clear path to playing time. Guys like Jose Altuve, Jason Bartlett, Alexi Casilla, Ende Chavez, and those are just a few names from the front of the alphabet. Odds are there will be some stolen bases available as free agents at some point this season. So I didn't need to chase them at the draft, and nobody says I need to win that category anyway. Even a lower third finish will give me some points that I didn't need to have to pay much for. And that allowed me to better allocate my resources elsewhere. So there you have it. Punting categories, not usually a viable draft strategy, but a fairly workable tactical approach should you be forced to shift direction during the draft. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler.
Ron Chandler writes a weekly column, Fanalytics, that appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about his draft radar alert for batters, always one of his most popular columns. Ron also discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 3rd as we put show number 7 of the 2012 fantasy baseball season into the books. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Please tell your friends about the show and take a second or two to go to iTunes and give us those five stars that keep us going. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball. It's always a pleasure to talk with Gene because he is one of the truly nice guys in this business. Also, thanks to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator, as always, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Alex Becky's essay about dynamic drafting with ACES, Brandon Wilson's research article on platoon splits, and Ray Murphy's speculator column is back looking at National League what-ifs for spring training. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, and buyer's guides. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com appears every Tuesday, and I have a Roto strategy piece on adjusting Mayberry values on the site right now. Hope you can catch those. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, or you can catch Jock Thompson and me from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Monday night and Friday night on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Sirius Channel 210, XM Channel 87, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio, where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.